Father, we thank you again for this time together. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit to receive this word implanted, that it might produce a crop of royal praise to you, our King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, no dillying nor dallying this morning. We've got a lot to do, a lot to cover. Um, last four weeks, we've been through James 1, James 2, James 3, James 4. And where have we been in this book to this point? The four guys who covered the previous four chapters have really done a good job. Preaching is hard. I do preaching. Sorry, that's an inside joke. My wife got that. Um, Preaching an entire chapter of a book is even harder. And again, the four guys that have done this to this point have done very good. Thankful to God and praise God for faithful men who will deliver the Word to you. They've done very well, and I thank God for them. So I'll just fly over some basic info um, where we have been in James because we're wrapping it up. This is the conclusion, right? Uh, chapter 1, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Remain steadfast. Trials are a gift, Don said, I remember. Uh, there's a difference between being a hearer of the Word and a doer of the Word. And chapter 1 ended by touching on the tongue stuff, which um, next week we'll jump into the sin of partiality. Faith without works is dead. The whole system goes down. That's how you said it. The whole system goes down. Um, Chapter 3, Steve dealt with the tongue in large part, uh, talking about taming the tongue and how no man can tame the tongue, but with God all things are possible. And then the wisdom from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then last week, Andrew dealt with worldliness and you adulterous people. He called y'all adulterers. I mean, I don't know if y'all picked up on that or not. Andrew McKay called you all adulterers. I was here for it, and I, I was part of it too. So humble yourself. Don't speak evil against each other. Uh, don't boast about tomorrow. And I want to I read that last part of chapter 4, and I don't have it up there. I just, it, that just, just came to me because I think we need to see this. The end of what Andrew covered last week in chapter 4 said, Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're almost home. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now get a hold of that word. Arrogance. Because really, chapter 5 is going to expand on that thought and the call or the command, literally, to not be arrogant. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So that's where we've been through four chapters of faithful exposition. So now we come to our last chapter, chapter 5. Um, And we'll look at it in five sections. Okay, that's how we're going to attack it this morning. We're going to look at it in five different sections. Um, And before I do that, before I jump into the first section, I want to read something. Um, If you remember way back when Don was preaching in chapter 1, James said that this book was written to uh, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay? So he's writing to Jews who had been scattered all over the Roman world. Now, uh, it's funny, Andrew mentioned Doug Moo last week, Douglas Moo, the commentator, um, as, as opposed to an exceptional tater. This guy's just a commentator. Um, I, I had already recorded a quote by Douglas Moo from that same um, commentary. Uh, and so I'm like, oh yeah, I know what he's, what he's reading from here. But, but listen to this about the dispersion, because this sets the tone for what we're doing today too. The phrase, scattered among the nations, translates a Greek phrase meaning literally, in the diaspora. Diaspora, or dispersion, became a technical name for all the nations outside of Palestine where Jewish people had come to live. In his first letter, Peter uses this term to address his readers, if you all remember that way back, who are almost certainly Gentiles. Here, 
Mu says, the word probably has a figurative meaning, meaning characterizing Christians as people who live in this world apart from their true heavenly homeland. But, watch this now, the early date of the book of James and the Jewish audience of James suggests a more literal meaning for the term here. As we argued in the introduction, Mu says, James writes to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed as a result of persecution. Now, I bring that up because it does set the stage for what we're going to cover in large part here today. And there are two passages in Acts that I want to blow through real quick to show how and when this scattering may have happened. Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose after Stephen, you remember Stephen was stoned for his witness as being a Christian, the Jewish uh, leaders stoned him. After the persecution that arose after Stephen, those who were scattered traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So Stephen gets stoned and a persecution comes upon Christians. And they flee Jerusalem and they scatter all over the place. Now there's one other place in Acts 18 that mentions something similar but a different persecution. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Now look, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay? Let me tell you what that is just really quickly. Uh, that persecution here that caused the Jews to leave Rome happened um, when Claudius, the emperor, got confused. And there was an uprising led by a guy named Christos. What's that sound like? Christos or Christ or Christians. Okay? So this guy named Christos led a rebellion and Claudius said, All you Christians, get out of here. All you Christ followers, you've got to leave Rome because I'm not having you lead uprisings here. So all the Jews, all the Jewish believers, specifically Christians, were forced to leave Rome. Now get in your mind, these people are dispossessed. I mean, if somebody comes today and says, you've got to go, go where? I don't care. But you can't be here anymore. That's the plight of so many of these people who are receiving this letter from James. They're scattered all over the Roman world. They're trying to make new homes. They're probably not settled in. Do you think they're facing some persecution? Some uncertainty? Some trials? Do you think they're really rich? Maybe, maybe not. But put yourself in their place as we read this last chapter now and look at these five sections. So our first section is verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now like Andrew pointed out last week and like we read at the end of chapter 4 there, this introductory structure here at the beginning of chapter 5 is the same as that ending in chapter 4. Come now, you. And back in 4.13, it was, Come now, you who say. And there he appealed to those who talked of what they were going to do without recognizing that it was actually boastful to do so since they should commend all of their plans, their whole lives, to God who wills. All such boasting is evil. And in that section of chapter 4, their boasting was about what? Going to such and such a town, spend a year there and what? Trade and make a profit. Well, here in chapter 5, James pushes that thought forward using the same structure. Come now, you rich. Okay? Now, does James have something against rich folk? Back when Will spoke, he mentioned uh, there was some stuff about uh, rich people back there, and he said, I'll leave that for Jason. Thank you very much. Um, is being rich a sin? Is being poor holy? Is it a virtue? Okay, so here we are. Come now, you rich. Come and what? Celebrate. 
You're doing well. Praise God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Oh, shoot. James is calling on those readers who are rich to what? To weep and howl. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Not hoop and holler. Weep and howl. He's calling on them to be very, very upset, visibly and audibly upset. Why? Because they have miseries coming upon them. What miseries? Well, he says their riches have rotted, their garments are moth-eaten, their gold and silver have corroded. Now at the time of James writing this, these things hadn't happened literally. But James is, like he so often does, he's referring to something that his half-brother Jesus had said. If you'll bring to mind Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and let me just say, you put the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James side by side, there's a lot of commonality. But Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus and thus James are pointing to the temporary nature of earthly treasures. The temporary nature of riches and goods. Moth, rust, and thieves are inevitable. As is the assurance that all earthly possessions, all earthly wealth, listen, is going to burn. If you remember back in 2 Peter, Peter said it's all going to dissolve in fire. So, you rich folks, you might as well weep and howl now because your hearts are set on these things now. And they're your treasure and they're going away. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and their corrosion will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. All this rotting and eating and corroding will serve as evidence of the sorry state of these rich people's hearts. And none of these riches is going to preserve their physical life either. It's all going to end, including their flesh. And in those last days, all that has been stored up, everything that's been laid up, will be gone. And as if that wasn't bad enough... The way these riches were obtained is just as rotten as the corrosion that will consume them. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Behold, James says to the rich man, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now here we go. This is an aha moment. Because it's loaded with motivations and implications by and for the rich being condemned here. Why are they being condemned? Not because they're rich. They're not bad or wrong for being rich. But these rich folks got rich how? They defrauded their workers who worked for them and had their wages withheld. Anybody ever worked at a job where it was payday and you didn't get a check? That's not good. I was going to say something a little more caustic there, but it's not good. Show up to get your check. We don't have checks. What, what I just spent two weeks doing, right? And that's what's going on here. These rich men had withheld the wages of their workers. The rich folk didn't pay their workers a fair wage at all, if at all. These rich men north of Jerusalem, right? Overtime hours for... Not enough pay. <laughs> it's a shame or something. Um, at least some of the riches of the rich people were gotten by fraud, by withholding just honest pay to those who had worked for those wages. And those workers did what? They cried out to God who heard. Now this is where I think we're talking about these dispersed workers, these dispersed Jews who are all over the Roman world. They're working for other people now. And they're going, God, we're not getting paid. 
It's the Exodus scene all over again, right? And in Exodus, God heard their cries. What's happening here? God hears their cries. Literally. It says that their, their cries have called out to the Lord of hosts, which is the God of angel armies in the Net Bible, if you read the Net Bible. And then James just says, their cries have reached his ears, and then he just leaves that thought there. And it's a bad conclusion, not for those who cried out, but for the rich people who are being cried out against. God heard the cries of the defrauded, and his armies are ready to dole out punishment against the fraudsters. And that is a reason to weep and howl, y'all. You don't want to be on the wrong side of his story. But instead of being moved by sorrow to repentance, these rich folk just live it up. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What strong words. James doesn't pull any punches. He says that these rich people, seen as experiencing blessing by the eyes of the world, the world looks on and says, man, look at those guys. They're, they've got it figured out. They're, they're blessed and highly favored. And as they live in that, in their luxury and self-indulgence, they testify against themselves by so doing. Because all they've ended up doing is that they have fattened their hearts. Now, I don't think James could know the scientific truth of that, even though it was scientifically true. But they have fattened their hearts like a cow for a day of slaughter. Kill the fattened calf, the father proclaimed when the prodigal returned. And people would keep certain cows specifically fattened for special celebrations. These rich people celebrating and living in their luxury are just overindulging and making themselves fat, literally and figuratively. They're making themselves fat and starving their workers. And James makes it clear that it's going to lead to their slaughter. And then he ends this section by justly condemning these rich perpetrators by saying they have condemned and murdered the righteous person. This righteous person, he does not resist you. So we move from just rich people doing selfish things to these same rich people setting themselves against righteous people, against God's people. The only way you can be righteous is to be declared righteous by God. So this is not just God not liking rich people. It's the Father protecting and avenging the unjust treatment of His children. These rich people have enraged the holy God by condemning, by passing negative judgment, and even murdering God's righteous people. And God will not stand for it. So yes, weep and howl, rich people. What's coming for you is misery. And it's as good as done. And they deserve it. Right? You say, we shouldn't say that. James says it. The Holy Spirit says it. Week one of sabbatical... When Don was preaching, I was sick, and I stayed at home, and I listened to his message. And then I watched uh, Gettysburg, the movie Gettysburg from back in the 90s. Uh, and this passage, th there was a quote said in the movie that I'm like, I need to write that down. That need, that's at James 5. It was by General Buford. As they come into Gettysburg, the Union Army comes into Gettysburg, and the politicians and the people are saying, where have y'all been? Who's going to protect us? There's rebels everywhere. General Buford says this. Something about the mayor and politicians and dignitaries that troubles me a bit. They're too fat and they talk too much. And they never think twice about asking a man to die for them. I was like, woof. I'm like, that's James 5. That's these rich people in James 5. And as troubling as that is to us, God is troubled by it too. And that's bad news for those who cause that trouble. So, next section, verses 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, to me, this is a very interesting turn of events. Okay? After bringing the hammer down on the rich folks 
who are living high on the hog and persecuting righteous people, James directs his attention now to his readers and how they are to respond to the persecution that they are probably experiencing in all this. Because they're probably reading this about the rich people going, yes, yes. Now keep in mind that so many of James's readers have been uprooted, scattered, and forced to try to scratch out a living in a new land, a place that hadn't been their home previously, a place where they're aliens and strangers. They were the persecuted. They were the marginalized. So how does he tell them to respond? Unionize, right? Uprising. Revolt. Rebel. Fight for your right to party. Beastie boys, how does he tell them to respond? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Hmm, how about that? James made it clear that God is going to execute just vengeance against those who condemn and murder his people, who defraud innocent people. So then, his people, what should you do? Wag the finger? Play the victim? Cuss and swarp and accuse and threaten the persecutors? No. Be patient. That's the command. Being, be, being, is conducting yourself. Being yourself. Doing what you do. And here these brothers are called to be patient. In the midst of persecution, suffering, having their payday withheld, be patient. Live and conduct themselves in a way that shows that they are not disgruntled or restless, but are patient, long-suffering, aware of a need to wait. And what are they patiently waiting for? It's not their payday. They are to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. Not vindication in the here and now. Not validation. Not deliverance from their troubles in the present age. But rather, be patient while you wait for the return of the Lord. Now, time out. James said that 2,000 years ago. Has Jesus come back since then? Did we miss it? So that means a lot of people have been patient and waited all the way to their death. Hmm. Why then should they wait patiently for that? Why then should we wait patiently for that? Because again, it could be another 2,000 years. It could be today. We don't know. So then why should we be patient in the midst of persecution and, and, and wrong treatment and wait for the coming of the Lord? Because again, James has already said that God's going to make all things right. God is going to execute justice. They don't have to, and neither do we. But we do. And they can't make all things right. God is going to execute justice, and they can't make everything right anyway. They make some things right. They can do the right thing. So be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then the next couple of sentences gives an illustration of how that patient waiting looks. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand 2,000 years ago. The illustration is of a farmer, which is a familiar biblical word picture, right? Farmers prepare the soil, they plant seed, and then what? They wake up the next day and the harvest is ready? No, there's a process of time between planting and harvesting. Yes, there are things to do. And don't miss that. There are things to do. Water, weeding, such. But the main thing is the waiting. I can water, I can weed, but the main thing I have to do as a farmer is wait. The farmer waits for the fruit of the earth to come patiently. And that fruit comes after the early and the late rains, the March and the August precipitation. And anything done before both is destructive to the crops. 
Don't go try to get your crops in April or May or June or July or August sometimes, maybe into September, October. Because if you do, you're going to ruin the crop. So I've got to wait. And I work in the waiting. Absolutely I do. But I've got to wait patiently too for the early and the late rains. All we can do with time is wait for it to pass. You cannot manipulate time a bit. All the farmer can do is patiently wait and trust the process which has proven to be fruitful season after season after season. And has God not been faithful season after season after season? That helps us to wait more patiently. He's always been faithful. Blood of Jesus ain't failed me yet. And it never will. So that helps me to wait, helps me to be patient. So you also, James says, be patient. Establish your hearts, he says. I love that. Let your determination be set down at heart level, not just surface, circumstance level, biting your tongue, clenching your jaw, and I'm all right. No, no, no. Settle the question. Listen beforehand. Establish your hearts before you start waiting. And then you can wait more effectively. And you can do that, James says, because the coming of the Lord is what? At hand. It's right here. It's imminent. But we just said, wait a minute, time out. 2,000 years have gone by. Yep, it's true. And it's imminent. Yeah, we have to wait. But the waiting is kind of the same as the corroding of the gold and silver. It's as good as done. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And the last statement is as sure and as true as the first two. Anchor your heart in that. And he's going to go on with this thought farther and he does it with the peculiar thought statement next. Be patient. Jesus is coming back. Then this, verse 9. Uh, yeah. Do not grumble against one another. Now what? Hold on. But they kind of shifted the gear there, didn't they? So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge standing at the door. Okay, I get the connection with the judge standing at the door, but I'm a little surprised at the clause before that statement. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now I don't have a problem with that thought there being a biblical thought or command, but it seems a little bit out of place here, doesn't it? Why, why would he talk about grumbling against each other here in calling on his readers to patiently wait for God's justice against their persecutors and fraudsters? I have a thought. People who grumble about being persecuted by the unrighteous are probably going to grumble about and against the righteous too, right? Grumblers going to grumble. Your patient waiting, listen, has to affect your relationships with your brothers too. If you aren't convinced that Jesus is coming soon, you're going to be impatient in every area of your life. Restless, upset, provoked, anxious, because why wouldn't you be? People, even God's people, sometimes especially God's people, can be pretty awful, can't they? Yes, I can. So how should we respond to our brothers? Grumble about them? Now listen, church. How many times have you grumbled against somebody sitting in this room? Not to them, unfortunately, but in your heart or to somebody else. James says, don't. The Holy Spirit says through James, don't. He says not to grumble even against our brothers so that you may not be judged. And there's a clear connection to the current thought too. Grumblers, whatever they're grumbling against, make themselves judges. And if we know that God is the judge, we won't pass judgment on others by grumbling against them. We rest in and on God's judgment. And where is He? Yeah, He's right there. He's standing at the door. He hasn't come through it yet. But he could at any time. You're like, he don't have a key to that door. I promise you, Jesus can get through that door. 
I got a key. I'm stronger than Jesus, right? No. The judge is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord is at hand. So rest in that. Find your comfort, your patience, your ability to endure in that, in Him, in His nearness, even now. And James gives a couple more pictures to help give us clarity of what this looks like. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. To help show how we are to wait patiently in suffering, James refers to God's prophets and to Job. They waited in the midst of persecution and suffering and we now consider them blessed. Their latter state was that of blessedness. Did they feel blessed when they were suffering? I doubt it. And they did suffer from what Luke read this morning. How'd you like to get those news flashes? One day. I can't imagine the loss of a child. Ten in one day? All your stuff, all your cattle, all your riches, and guy after guy after guy just comes and says, hey, you just lost everything. I, I alone made it to tell you about it. Hey, your kids are dead. I alone made it to tell you about it. Is that blessed? You don't feel blessed. Is Job blessed now? You bet he is. There's a whole book of the Bible about Job. And we read about it. Yes, they suffered. Yes, those prophets suffered. Some of them, Hebrews will tell us later when we get there, were sawn in two. Is that blessed? Didn't feel like it at the time. Saul's hurt, y'all. Trials are hard. Suffering is difficult. But what's the result of it? James tells us that it's blessedness. Their latter state was that of blessedness. After they persevered and perpetually throughout eternity, they were and will ever be blessed. We tend to think, listen, that God is not compassionate and merciful when we're persecuted or when we suffer. But it turns out that the conclusion of all of it is that He is indeed compassionate and merciful. So James says, rest in that. Because we know that there is nothing that we can go through at the hands of the righteous or the unrighteous that will not end in knowing God as compassionate and merciful. Amen. We know that nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So rest in that. So wait patiently for Him to come and bring that to fruition in our lives. That's beautiful. I've never spent much time in that section of the Scripture and I'm like, that's beautiful. Oh, we got a boogie. Sorry. Next section, just one verse. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Okay, so to this point in chapter 5, James has called rich people to weep and saved people to wait. And no, our application points are not W's, by the way, if that's where you're going. Well, here he continues his instructions to his brothers, those in the faith with him, by saying, but above all, putting a priority on this, do not swear. Swear here is the Greek word omnuo, and the best definition I found of it says it means to promise solemnly, usually invoking a divine witness regarding your future acts or behavior, often including penalties for failure within the contents of the oath. So read that verse again with that in mind. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is so James-ish in that it's him pretty much quoting Jesus again. And again, the Sermon on the Mount again. 
Jesus in Matthew 5, 37. Again, you've heard it that was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great capital K, King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Listen, anything more than this comes from evil. I mean, could there be a more direct quote? And that's James's point here. You put yourself in the place of sovereignty when you declare, swear, or promise that something will come about. Much like what Andrew covered last week in the we'll go to such and such a place and make a profit arrogance, here James, in direct agreement with Jesus, points out the pride in this. Don't swear by heaven or earth. Don't make an oath because you can't guarantee anything. Why? Newsflash, you're not God. You are not God. And, James says, make your statements and answers as brief as possible. Listen, there's wisdom here. Young folks, listen to this. Old folks too, hopefully we've already learned this lesson. Let your statements and answers be as brief as possible, especially in the court of law, by the way, if you ever got to go testify. Lawyers, don't get me started. Yes. No. That's enough. If you're like me, it's all too common to elaborate on your yes or no. Oh, absolutely yes, because I saw it myself, and I'll never forget it. Or, oh, there ain't no way, because I guarantee I'd never do anything like that. Swear to God. What if you're wrong? What if something happens outside of your control? Because listen, there's a lot of those things that makes you wrong. And listen, you're wrong a lot. And so am I. And that leads to condemnation or harsh judgment against you from others. Communicate your plans in light of God's will, James said in chapter 4. And here in chapter 5, he sounds a little bit like Aaron Burr, sir. Smile more, talk less. Did you see the news today? Nope. Are you going to work tomorrow? Yeah, if the Lord wills. That's enough. That's all you need. You're not sovereign. You can't make oaths and promises because things happen and those things are outside of your control. And the point here is don't be arrogant and think you can control everything because you're not God. Anything more than yes or no, Jesus and James say, the Holy Spirit says through both of them, is arrogant and it's ill-advised. Fourth section, it's a doozy, 13 to 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers... Oh, I'm not there yet. Sorry, we'll stop at 18. Bore its fruit. Okay. Now, obviously, <laughs> we can't give this the treatment it deserves in covering a whole chapter. This deserves four, five, six, eight weeks to really dive into. We ain't doing it, okay? And we, I promise you, I'm not going to answer all your questions from this passage, this specific passage, in the survey form of going through a chapter at a time. But we will get the plain and main things quickly. So if you just read these six verses and purposefully stay out of the weeds, it's not really that difficult, is it? Continuing his exhortation to his suffering readers to place their trust in God, he says that if someone is suffering, what should they do? Pray. What if somebody's cheerful? Well, then sing praise. 
which is really prayer because you're talking to God and saying, God, you're good. Thank you. This is wonderful. I love it. Okay? So sing praise. Direct both your suffering and your, cheerful, your cheerfulness to the person of God. What about sickness? Well, pray about that too. And the specific direction is for the sick person to call for the elders of the church to pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And you're going, okay, tell me about that. Well, why this specific instruction here? Why not just tell the sick person to pray like the suffering person? And what's with the oil thing? Well, let me give you some possibilities and maybe settle on a quick conclusion. If you wanted to check with 10 different commentators on this passage, you'd probably get at least five or six different thoughts as to what this means. Some would say the elders are being called because of the gravity of the sickness. Call the elders because you can't get to them. Call them to come to you. Some would say the elders are being called because the person who is sick is sick because they've been sinning, and the elders are called because they're being disciplined and can't be with the congregation. I'd never heard that before, but okay. Some say it's just common sense that elders visit the sick, right? Pastors go to the hospital. What about the oil? Some say it's medicinal. Some say it's symbolic for consecration like in the Old Testament. Some say it's for massaging to help comfort. It's all over the map. And I have to say that while I have an opinion on this, I'm not 100% confident to say, thus saith the Lord, and this is what this means. I don't have that confidence. And I think it's important to know how to handle texts that you're not 100% confident handling, especially in a survey type of message like this where we're covering a whole chapter at once. If we don't know the specifics, we can resort to the general. And if you take the entirety of this section, the plain meaning is clear. So let's see what's being said in this flyover and know what is being said, even with the uncertainty about elders and oil and why and how and all that. So I want to read these six verses again. Stay with me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. If you read that and you're saying, what's he saying, you're not going to talk about elders and oil. What are you going to talk about? Prayer. It's about prayer. Okay? The command is to pray. What's James telling his readers here? If you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful, you pray. Are you sick? You need somebody to pray for you. Are you sinning? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Take all of these things to God in whatever form it takes to communicate with faith to Him. Ask God in faith to heal. Ask God to forgive. Ask God to alleviate your suffering. Ask God and give Him praise for the good stuff. All this directs our attention away from our efforts and toward faith in Him. And then James gives the example of Elijah who was made up of the same stuff as us. He wore flesh and blood just like we did. And he prayed in faith according to the will of God that it wouldn't rain and what happened? Well, Elijah was a hero, right? Because it didn't rain. No, God's the hero. This reaches all the way back to the first chapter and talking about faith, humility, asking God and goes all the way through the letter to instruct the readers, including us, to go to God and ask Him in faith for help in whatever situation you are in. You need wisdom? You go to God. You're showing people partiality? You need to pray about that. You need help in taming your tongue? Well, where would you go for that? You need to go to God. You're dealing with arrogance and pride? What should you do? Take that to God. Rich people persecuting you? What should you do? Take it to God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't try to figure it out and do it yourself. Don't try to be the hero of the story. Take it to Him. Don't be arrogant and think you don't need Him. You do. So pray. Elijah needed help for it to not rain. He couldn't control that. So he prayed 
And for three and a half years it didn't rain. And then he prayed again, and doggone it rained. Take it all to God in faith and rest in His will to do what's best for His glory and for the good of His people. And while I can't tell you today whether I should be carrying around a flask of oil or not, and I'm not, I can say that we as believers should pray. Pray for ourselves, pray for each other, and our prayer is to be offered in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. That prayer is to be offered in faith to God, whom we believe can do what we're asking Him to do. And also clear in this section is that we are to confess our sins to one another, which again puts a dagger in the heart of arrogance. Right? We don't confess to a priest, not a person who claims higher standing than us in the kingdom, which is crazy talk and unbiblical. Like they can take our confessions to God for us, but we confess to one another. It's one of those one another's in the Bible. And we pray for each other in the midst of all this. In so doing, we are constantly to go to God ourselves and point each other to God all along the way as well which is the opposite of arrogance. Last section, verses 19 and 20. We're almost done, y'all. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins in the credits roll on the book of James. Now, we're so familiar with Paul's letters and Peter's letters and them ending with some sort of doxology or a prayer of grace and peace to you um, or I, Paul, write this with my own hands. It's like, it's like a, a, a proper ending. This doesn't feel like a proper ending to me. If I was God, I'd write this book different. Well, James does end this letter pretty oddly, pretty abruptly in my opinion, but the Holy Spirit knows what He's doing, Right? After the section that covered confessing to and praying for each other, James extends the scope of how to reach out and to whom to reach out to when he calls his readers, and yes, again, us as well, to reach out to wayward believers. Instead of being arrogant and passing judgment on them and they deserve what they get, oh no, man, seek and find. So yes, we are to pray for ourselves. We praise God in good times. We ask for prayer when we're sick. We confess our sins and pray for each other. But we're also to go out looking for those who've wandered off. Again, I can't help but think of Jesus' words about leaving the 99 to find the one. James says that if there is a believer that gets off track and wanders from the truth, and I think that could mean in sin, I think that's predominantly what it means, but I think also in bad teaching, in neglect, or whatever may draw them away, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, then let that one who brings back the person who wandered off know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his, the wanderer's, soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now again, we could dissect this and dig deep and come up with some really good questions that need answering, but the cursory reading is pretty clear, right? What's our attitude to be towards someone who gets caught up in sin? Arrogance? Like it couldn't happen to me? I would never do that. Be careful. Well, being consistent with the whole book, James is saying not to get on your high horse. Instead, love that person enough to seek them out and bring them back. And in so doing, know that you have saved that person from death because John tells us in his letter, there are sins that lead to death. Paul speaks of handing someone over for the destruction of their body to Satan so that their soul will be saved. So I believe the death that James is speaking here of is literal physical death. And in bringing this person back, a multitude of sins will be covered. The wanderer's sins? The seeker's sins? Yes. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8 that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's the vibe I'm getting here from James. Show love in seeking a wanderer. Receive love from God, His people, and the wanderer. And let the wanderer know that love that is able to wrap them up too. 
and as such a multitude of sins will be covered in love and grace, which is the gospel. We made it. Now we've just got five application points to work through. And that's true, and they're going to be real brief, I promise, okay? Five sections, five application points, five M's. Everybody go, mmm. I didn't mean that. You didn't really have to do that. I'm just kidding. Five M's. Money, martyr, mum, modus, and mission. Those are the best application points ever. Money, martyr, mum, modus, mission. Modus is M-O-D-U-S, by the way. We'll get to that in a second. First application point is money. Listen, the application, don't love money. Don't. We talked about this some Wednesday in here. Our, our section in Don't Waste Your Life was love God, serve God, glorify God with your money. The Bible is clear. Piper pointed out Wednesday, Jesus speaks more about money than He did heaven and hell combined. Why? Because it's dangerous. Listen to me. We had kind of a, a, a little bit of a debate Wednesday night about whether or not money has any morality to it at all. Whether money is moral or amoral without morals. And we said that money is amoral, that it doesn't have morals. But I would say this, be careful. I think we need to speak of money and caution against the power of money as much as we do the power of sexual sin. The power of any sin. But listen, there is a specific worldliness to the power of money. And James says, weep and howl, you rich people. Not because you're rich, but because you've set your heart on your riches. Twenty-seven and a half years my wife and I have been married. The bulk of our disagreements have been about money. It's not bad. It's actually kind of good, right? But be careful. Don't let money get into your heart. We are wise to be very aware and leery of the power of money and its ability to grab our hearts. And do not be arrogant and think that it can't happen to you. And sometimes it's even worse when you don't have money because you covet it so much and you're so jealous of those who do have it, money's in your heart. Been there yesterday. Don't let money get into your heart. Makes your heart fat. That's application point one, money. Second is martyr. And this is really the main thought of the passage, I think, the whole passage. How are God's people to respond to the troubles that come upon them from righteous and unrighteous people? How did James say to respond? With patience. Patience to the point of either death or the return of Christ. Patience. Let me read another quote from Douglas Moo. I just like quoting Moo. Okay, that's just fun. The fact that the readers have been dispersed, forced to live away from their home country, helps explain a second major characteristic of the readers of the letter. Their poverty and oppressed condition. Wealthy landowners have taken advantage of them. Rich people haul them into court and scorn their faith. One of the key purposes of the author is to encourage these suffering Christians in the midst of these difficulties, reminding them of the righteous judgment of God that's coming and exhorting them to maintain their piety in the midst of their trials. Some scholars, Boo finishes, find the key to the letter at just this point. Maintain your piety in the midst of your trials. That's the mindset and the lifestyle of a martyr. You say, I gotta die? I'm saying, do it unto death. Jesus said in Acts 1 8, You will be my witnesses. That word is martus, a witnessing lifestyle. Christopher Watkins says in his book, Biblical critical theory, the Christian's mode of engagement is as a martyr, a word that literally means witness. How are you going to witness to the goodness of God in the midst of your trials? By patiently waiting. Not causing a ruckus, 
fighting for your rights. Now, does that mean that we're all right with injustice? No. Heavens no. Let justice roll down like a river. And we are to contend for justice and righteousness and peace and joy. And while we're suffering in the midst of it, we wait for God to dole it all out. And we're willing to do that to the death. Here's the statement that I would make. When things are not as they should be, you are still to be as you should be. That's what a martyr does. Entrusting God to make it all right. It's very arrogant to think you can make it all right. Only God can do that. So I will wait patiently, meekly, for Him to do what only He can do. Money, martyr, now mum, this is real quick. Keep your speech simple. That's a great application point. Not because I came up, because James said it, because the Holy Spirit said it. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Smile more, talk less. Yes, no. Anything else? The literal wording of Jesus' words is, is from the evil one. Mum. Mum's the word. Money, martyr, mum. Now modus. You ever heard the phrase modus operandi? That's someone's habit of working, the way which they tend to do something consistently. What is to be our modus operandi as followers of Jesus? Are you suffering? You pray. Are you cheerful? Sing praise. Are you sick? Call for elders to pray. Are you sinning? Confess your sins to one another and pray. Now, I'm not just talking about your hour in the prayer closet, which I've never experienced in my life, by the way. Some of you guys are prayers way better than me. And I drift toward prayerlessness so often. But the very air we breathe as Christians is to be to pray. Communicating with God. And here's the deal. Taking everything to Him. Everything. Suffering, cheerful, sick, sinning. Take it to God. Don't be arrogant to the point that you think you can make it work. You can't. Take it to Him. With God, nothing is impossible. So money, martyr, mum, modus, and finally, mission. Seek the wayward, James says. In the mindset of the martyr, but to the point of going out and looking for those who have wandered off. Don't roll your eyes. Don't dismiss them. Oh, well, they deserve what they get. Well, guess what? You deserve that too. And what did God do? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He did become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, emptying Himself. We are to have that same mindset. Listen, that passage that... Uh, Luke mentioned he didn't read it, but that Philippians 2 passage says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lay down your life for other people. Live on mission, looking for those who need to hear that Jesus interposed His precious blood for them. And that's how James ends his letter. Now live it out and go out and find other people who need it. Yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful book, this wonderful letter that Jesus' half-brother wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be doers of this Word, God to be doers of your word. Help us to know it, understand it, live it out, and share it with other people to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us to preach a gospel that says Jesus interposed his precious blood for lost, wayward strangers like us. And may that truth communicate and bring life. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.